As advertised, we would like to spend a few weeks on the doctrine of the church. So our plan is to spend the remaining weeks in April, which is uh, three weeks basically on the doctrine of the church, and then we anticipate to step back into the progress of redemption through the scriptures, um, and then perhaps do something else a few months afterwards. But we'd like to look here at, at the doctrine of the church from Ephesians chapter 4. It is interesting because sometimes the way people approach ideas regarding the church, sometimes the questions that folks ask about sort of what, how a church functions, maybe how our church functions and this sort of thing, it does uh, and should draw us back into the scriptures for us to really understand what is this thing, the church, and our culture has certainly been no friend to an orthodox understanding of the church. It's likely uh, that, uh, that you uh, grew up with an understanding of the church that may have been less than accurate. Uh, that would be true of everyone, since our understanding of the Scriptures, of course, is imperfect. But nonetheless, as we look at the doctrine of the church here, uh, it would certainly be important for us also to recognize as a confessional church that we have affirmed that uh, the London Baptist Confession is for us a structural help as we look at the Scriptures and as we understand what the Scriptures uh, are saying to us about our Church And in this particular passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, there are a few things uh, that should initially hopefully come out uh, and pop out upon us, as it were. And one of those is uh, something that we've been singing about today, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this idea that the Lord Jesus Christ is, in fact, the head of the church. And this is a very interesting term. When you think of head, uh, uh, a number of things uh, may come to mind, but this uh, will help us to understand that. Also, of course, you have this idea of saints. Um, the Apostle Paul is uh, certainly understanding that the church is made up of saints, that is, those who are redeemed, and that is a distinction in our understanding of the Scriptures. And so we want to look here at this passage. Chapter 4 of Ephesians is right in the middle of the book. Ephesians has six chapters. It's a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And what we see here is something that the Apostle Paul did pretty typically, and that is he begins with doctrine, and then he ends with duty. And so what you have here in Ephesians is no less uh, than some have described it as a miniature book of Romans, but nonetheless what you see here is in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Ephesians, you have the Apostle Paul laying out the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what you have him doing in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the application of that doctrine, and you can see pretty simply uh, this really encapsulated in one word in verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore... Therefore, that is, now that you have all of this doctrine, here's what you do with it. Here's how you live it out. Here's how you apply it. This is, this is the so what, if you will, in all reverence. This is, this is why this is so important. And so we, we look here at this. And I would like to 
draw your attention to a certain concept here that I think is appropriate for the passage of Scripture, and that is this simple idea of one thing corresponding to another, if you will. One thing corresponding to another. For instance, the miraculous and incomprehensibly complex universe corresponds to having God as its sovereign and omniscient maker. So you consider the universe and you consider that there must be, uh, in a sense, this, uh, this equivalent corresponding power that created it, right? Any mom can look around her home and see a mess and she can say, there is a corresponding power to this mess. I know what it is. The one matches the other, you see. Additionally, the sinful state of mankind, his earning of an eternal hell, corresponds to having Jesus Christ, the God-man, as Savior. Labrador retrievers are wonderful dogs, but they can't save you from a life of sin. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can untangle that mess and bring an individual to an eternity in heaven and all that that means. The intentions and purposes for the church as established by her Creator correspond to the multiplicity of gifts directed to it and for it. Ephesians chapter 4, among other things, is about gifts. For instance, in verse 7, you see that He gave gifts to men. This idea of grace, this idea that grace is a gift, we can't earn it. This is an urgently important idea that was really reintroduced to the world formally through the Reformation. The simple idea... The simple idea that mankind is redeemed through a gift of God. And we call this gift grace. Grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. The gift. God gave gifts to men. So we see that not only is there this necessity, this corresponding necessity of the grace, the free grace of Christ in an individual, but also there is the corresponding necessity of these gifts of individuals that He gives to the church. And He speaks of that and this idea that really is... Not a full list of gifts, if you will, but nonetheless, those foundational gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and the pastor, teacher. So you have this as well. And so let's begin here in verse 11. With a simple pronoun, he. He. Who's that? Of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church. The church has a head, a leader, a source of life, a source of direction, a mind, the authority in the church. This head, we think of head, again, we we may be inclined to limit ourselves to this sort of chief executive officer idea or the leader idea, but the Lord Jesus Christ obviously is far more than simply the one at the head of the hierarchy. He's literally the source of life. Of the church, we also see that he's the first fruits. We discussed last week. Uh, we considered the resurrection. We considered resurrection life. We understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is this first fruits of the manifest harvest of all those that would be redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He stands, of course, as that one that validates all the other. 
You want to try a peach in a bushel basket you want to buy? Yeah, that's fine. Go right ahead. But you don't get to bite every single one of them. Right? The first fruits will be associated with the rest of the harvest. The Lord Jesus Christ. We will eventually look like Him. And this applies, of course, to the local church. He expresses His leadership through the leaders of the local church. Jesus Christ isn't merely the leader of His church. As I mentioned, He's the source of life. Not merely its source of beginning, but its continual and necessary source of life. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, this can be a confusing idea for us. Why is that? Well, because we live in a culture that says, God told me stuff. God told me this and He told me that. People, people blame all kinds of things on God. And they say, God led me here and He led me here and He did this and that and the other. And so what, what's happened is it's cheapened this simple concept that God speaks directly to us through His Word, and we take His Word as His authority in which we then go and invest ourselves in following our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we go forward. Now, again, the idea here isn't that you, you, you don't sense the work of the Holy Spirit as you read the Word of God. You have circumstances, situations in your life in which it certainly seems rightly so that God is validating a certain way in which you're going. But that's an altogether different idea than simply choosing something and expecting the Lord to bless that. That isn't the methodology of Christ's leadership in the church. And again, He didn't just spin it up in beginning. Jesus Christ is, is no deist when it comes to the leadership in the church. We're in union with Him. And it's important that we recognize that practically every time the word church shows up in the New Testament, it is a reference not to, if you will, the universal church, but it's a reference to the local church. So you may say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with Jesus being the head of the whole church, but what about, what about Providence Reformed Baptist Church? What about that collection of people that God has drawn to himself that meets at the YMCA in Joshua? What about that place? Is that, I mean, does he see that? I mean, is he a part of that? Because it may be, again, in our cultural situation, our cultural moment, it may very well seem that that being a part of starting a church or even being involved in a church is this sort of choose-your-own-adventure idea where you have, you have all kinds of color plates on the wall and different types of music and so forth and certain methodologies. And we just, we're just walking around kind of like being in a cafeteria. A little bit of this, thank you, a little bit of that, and so forth. But it isn't that. It's not that at all. And that's why we can, as we look at the Scriptures and we understand what it is that God is doing, the reality is, is there, there's going to be tremendous similarities in those churches that are abiding by our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to one, it looks kind of like what you're familiar with. If you're following the Word of God. Christ is the head. The Holy Spirit is the life action given to us. Now, a few months ago, I discussed this idea of the originating mandate for the local church. Um, I get this term from Sam Waldron, who wrote an excellent commentary on the confession. This concept of the the mandate of the church, the originating mandate, is uh, no less than what we proclaimed as we began, and that was one of the five great commissions the Lord Jesus Christ gave. And I'll read to you Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. 
28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I would draw your attention, and we'll discuss this later, a significant part of this passage in Ephesians 4, is simply this idea of disciples or teaching. The term translated disciples in the, in the Bible, in the four Gospels and in Acts, shows up 268 times. You might think that that's an important reference. This, this term disciple over and over and over and over. Disciples. The disciples were here. The disciples were there. The Lord Jesus looked at the disciples. The disciples followed him. The disciples were arguing. The disciples needed this. They needed that. And so forth. Here's the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the term disciple mean? You probably want to say follower. We are followers of Christ. And that should be very noteworthy in our resume of being a child of God, is that we're following Him. But disciple doesn't mean follower, it means learner. Now, the reason that this is so important is because, again, we think about this idea of this magnificent earth and universe. The corresponding creator of that is obviously tremendously magnificent. The two go together, right? Well, it's important for us because we come to a church, right? And we have all of these ideas, but we are known, we are known by the head of the church as what? Learners. We're learners. Now, there's a, there's a, a plethora of ideas that follow. If you're going to learn, what is, that, what is going to be inherent about you as an individual? Well, you're going to have to be humble. <laughs> You're going to have to humble your... If you're going to learn anything, you've got to submit yourself to the teaching. Right? These correspond also, of course, to the gifts. Notice in the mandate what it is that Christ is making. What did He say make? Now, the church as an organic structure is a tremendous organism. It's a family. Right? It's filled up of wonderful goodness. Absolutely. All kinds of things. You know, there are some people that that are uh, really like church because of lunch. I like lunch. A lot. I eat it every day. Most days. And you may say that, well, church is about lunch, or it's about my friends, right? And these are all, these are all of certainly involved in this beautiful organism of the church. You really, in a sense, you won't have a faithful church without these things, right? Because these are, these are the, uh, if you will, the things that follow from a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the church, But nonetheless, the Lord Jesus Christ is making disciples. He's making disciples. 
He's making learners, right? We're, we're called to, uh, and what is, uh, again, perhaps we could say something inherent, something integral to being a disciple is being a disciple maker, right? If you're a disciple, then you're, you're a disciple maker. You should be asking yourself this question. Who's learning from me? What, what am I, who, who am I teaching what I know? Who needs to know what I know? Who needs to know what I've learned? Who needs to understand the school of hard knocks collided with the sweetness of the Lord Jesus Christ's proclamation of the Word of God, and now, now I understand this thing. Who needs to know that? Now, it's important that we see the gifts given to the church correspond to the great purpose that God has called us together for in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them, teaching them, right? It's not a, teaching is not an accidental of the church, right? In other words, it's not just, it's not a byproduct, it's not a thing that also happens, we may, we may tend to look at it that way. Yeah, yeah, we had a great time at church. We did this and that and the other. I think I learned something there. I don't remember. That would be to kind of get it backwards, right? I'll never forget when the Commandant of the Marine Corps decided to refer to Marines as warrior athletes. I thought, that's amazing. That's an amazing idea. I mean, we do kind of get paid to work out. But when I think of myself as an athlete, things seem a little different now. My day looks a little different, right? It's like, well, wait a minute. I, what, if, what have I worked this today, right? And the Lord Jesus refers to His people as learners. We're learners, and so do we think of ourselves as learners? Let's look at this next passage of Scripture here in chapter, again, 4, verse 11. He gave, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, apostles and prophets are temporary and foundational. There are significant criteria involved in the apostolic ministry, and that criteria had to do with a personal conversation, uh, a personal tutorage, if you will, a personal relationship uh, in the flesh, um, basically to do that. There are no longer those people, those apostles, the Apostle Paul being the last, as he said, we mentioned last week, as one untimely born, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul. We don't have apostles anymore. It is the foundation that they have given to us in their teaching, but nonetheless, no longer do we have apostles. Prophets prophets are also a temporary foundational part of the church, a gift of the church. We know that prophets spoke the words of God, and what do we understand about the word of God that we have encapsulated in the written word? What do we know about that? Ah, it's complete. It's complete. It's all there. Everything that God intended for us to have is is there. You don't need the prophet anymore. Not in that sense. 
We certainly need one to, uh, sometimes people even would describe preaching historically as prophesying, but that is, in this sense, declaring the Word of God and applying it, and we would have it in that sense, but not in this term of gift of prophet, if you will. Next, we have two other officers, offices, and that's the office of the evangelist and then that of pastor-teacher. Some view the gift of evangelist as temporary, uh, yet it does seem that some are particularly gifted at fishing for men, but we should see also that the work of an evangelist is something that all of us are called to do. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that he should do the work of an evangelist. I'm persuaded that he wasn't indicating that Timothy had the gift of evangelist, but that Timothy needed not to be so bogged down in the daily routine of proclaiming the gospel and of being involved in all the activities of the church that he set aside the work of an evangelist. And that was an important aspect. Something often that sometimes people get drawn away from. Now I would draw your attention to this last phrase here, shepherds and teachers. And were you to look at this uh, in an original, you would see that there does appear to be four sets of gifts, if you will, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. And so the idea here, uh, the, the common understanding of this is that that is simply the same individual. He's a pastor, teacher. He's a shepherd, teacher. This is nothing but the elder in a local church. Again, the primary aspect of the office corresponds to the primary description of the redeemed in the Gospels. You know, there are some people that when they go camping, they just, they're all about cooking. You know what I mean? I mean, that's fine. So if you're all about cooking when you go camping, you need a cadre of cooks. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if, if you're all about cooking when you go camping, you're all about eating, I mean, you, brother, you need, to, you need to load up. I mean, you need, to, you need to have some people there that can cook and so you can enjoy that. Now, and you look at the church and, and the Lord Jesus, okay, the Lord Jesus, as the head of the church, He has collected and He has given to the church people that are savvy in business. Is that right? Or maybe he's given to the church, uh, you know, people that cook. But this doesn't, again, it doesn't correspond. The calling and the purpose of the church, the function of the church, is going to correspond to the gift of the church, to the church, and that is this function of teaching. Right? If we're all going to be a collection of learners, then... Something else has got to happen too, right? There's got to be other gifts given to the church. <laughs> we need teachers, right? The church needs teachers. If we're going to enter into the function of the church, right? I mean, if you go to a church and you want to enter into the things churches do, you're if you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it can't just be a song service. The primary aspect of that isn't a drum set. We don't have a drum set in the middle of our centerpiece here. We have a pulpit. The furniture is important. 
And it's, it's intentional. It's a symbol of what it is that God has made primary in the service of worship. And it corresponds to the gifts that he gives. The primary characteristic of what happens in the church corresponds again to the gifts of the people learning. And this all happens again in the carefully designed context created by the head of the church involving fellowship, camaraderie, spiritual and physical care, and so forth. 1 Timothy 3.15, the Bible says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, I would draw your attention to this because what you get in 1 Timothy 3.15 as well as Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 is really four, if you will, images or pictures of the church, synonyms of the church. The household of God. The church of the living God. The pillar and buttress of the truth. I would have to insist that it's the pillar and buttress of the truth. Where you look at practically any other translation, English translation uh, of the Bible of this verse, you would notice the little article, the, in front of pillar and buttress instead of the little word, a. And so it is, it is again, the household of God. What does that mean? What is a household? A household of God. I mean, there's a certain comprehensive nature to household. Certainly, we're talking about a family here. We're talking about caring for others. We're talking about the full orb of this family atmosphere, the household of God, the church of the living God. The pillar and buttress of the truth. Colossians 1.24 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church, another synonym for church here, the body of Christ. Again, this is, seems normal to us, but it, it seems perhaps that it's at least possible that we're not really entering into all that God means by that. Christ is the head of the church. I'm the body. He provides life. He provides uh, what it is that we're doing, how we do it, this sort of thing. We look at the next verse here in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Saints. I'm grateful that the Reformers recovered the word saint. Recovered it into its original biblical meaning. What is a saint? What is a saint? It's a synonym for the redeemed. It's a synonym for an individual Christian. That's a saint. The Apostle Paul affirming this simple idea that in some ways is unique to our own ecclesiology is that the church is made up of those who profess faith in Christ. We're the church. We're a new family. That's the idea. Now this may strike you as odd. 
But here's a question. Is the church made up of families? If you could only answer one way, what would you answer? Technically, the answer to that question is no. The church isn't made up of families. The church is made up of redeemed individuals, and they are a family. Now, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that the strength often of a church is in the collection of her families. We recognize that we, we do things often as families, right? But sometimes the actions of the church, the decisions that are made as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to recognize that the church is a family made up of redeemed individuals. Now this is particularly important for the culture that we live in, in some ways the evangelical culture that we live in. The reason I say that is this. There are no mediators between the ministry of the church and the redeemed. There are no mediators between the ministry and the church and the redeemed. Now that may strike at some people's sense of self-autonomy and self-sovereignty. But this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now where does this come into play? Well, it comes into play perhaps in some very difficult moments, but nonetheless, it's important. It's important for any individual that's redeemed to have the freedom to go and talk to the minister in the church without going through a familial head. The church is a family made up of redeemed individuals. The Apostle Paul did not write letters to the families that made up churches. He wrote letters to the individual saints that were the family of God. The church isn't a club. People come and go in clubs. But you're stuck with family. Yeah, that's Uncle Arthur. His boots squeak, and he can't carry a tune. But he's in the family. Right? And so, it's incumbent upon us to to recognize, I mean, things are different, right? You don't want to be in a club anymore, you just pack up and go. Families don't work that way. Christ is the head. Working things out biblically also strengthens the family. There is this process that challenge and difficulty in families is designed by the head of the church to make us stronger and grow us in grace. Now you say, well, (laughs) I don't like to learn that way. I don't like to learn in adversity. I don't like to learn in trouble. When I build something in my house, I want a big, wide piece of concrete with all kinds of light and electrical fixtures to do my work. Until a few months ago, I never experienced that. But it was all right. 
I mean, I grew up on a submarine, so, you know, it works. Tight spaces, you know, I can make that work. But God has us learning in challenging situations. He's equipping, He's perfecting, He's making perfect. This idea of equipping has to do with perfecting, with being made perfect. The idea isn't that He's maintaining such that we're coasting along. It's not random learning. It's not an occasional helpful thought. Let me ask you a question. Can what is happening in your life be described as being perfected in Christ? Can what is happening in your life through the Word of God, through the power of the life action of the Holy Spirit working in your life, through your relationships, through your response to challenges in your life, to demands that you make, through the the battle for bread, if you will, can you say that what's happening is serving to perfect you in Christ? Because again, in a sense, we could say the church has one job. One job. Is it happening? This is the lifelong process of becoming perfect. We see here two purposes in this passage of Scripture. To equip saints for two things. Verse 12, the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ. The work of ministry. I'm doing the work of the ministry. What is that? Well, what did the Lord Jesus say in Matthew chapter 28? We call it the Great Commission, right? Commission, the task at hand. What did He say do? He said, make disciples. Now sometimes when we, you know, your boss or your mom or dad, they say, what are you doing? And you know, you you shape your answer into the way that sounds like you're doing what they ask you to do. Have you ever done that? Oh, well, I'm, I'm doing this, and, 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 and uh, uh, it gets there, right? Can what you're doing be described as disciple-making? And then secondly, it's the building up of the body of Christ. Again, the body of Christ, don't forget, what is it? It's a synonym for the church, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, the body of Christ. All of those are words that mean church, the local church, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-6, through 6, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whomever, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What's the unique thing about the new heavens and the new earth? Well, you can think about the Old Testament, right? The old tabernacle system or the temple system. What did you have there? Well, you had a a certain defined space, right? Uh, You had certain individual people who were priests. Uh, Their... 
association with the ones that went before them. Their heredity was very important and so forth. Priests, temple, you got this. And what do you have in the new heavens and the new earth, though? Well, the whole earth is a temple. The whole earth is Eden. The whole earth is the holy of holies. And not only that, but everyone's a priest. We're all worshiping God as that one. Is that priest? This is the idea. We're, this is where we're going, right? Ephesians chapter two, verses nineteen through twenty-two. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. There's that synonym for church again, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There are these two gifts that are temporary. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, do you, do you think about yourself that way? So think of it. We're, each of us is an individual, if you will, portion, building material in which we are being put together perfectly and uniquely and designed to be, in totality, the household of God, the church of God, the people of God. That's, what, that's what's happening. And you think, you say, well, man, I, I, kinda, I don't really line up with this individual and so forth. Well, God's going to work all that out. He's, that's what's happening. That's what he's doing. He's building us up. Think of this in terms of an edifice, of a project, of a building project. And if you want to be like me and think of it as a ship at sea, that's fine. But this is a ship at sea that's being built while it's at sea. You've heard the term building the airplane in the air. I prefer the term building the ship at sea myself personally, but nonetheless, you get the idea. We're seaworthy. God has called us to Himself. He's created a church, right? And what's happening is we're, we're this complex, amazing structure that God is working on, this building, perfecting this complex structure whose constituent parts are continually undergoing a perfecting process of renovation. Not only is the whole building being put together, right? But each individual part of that building is also being perfected. I mean, how'd you like to show up to a job site with rough cut lumber all put together and then you walk up the next day and you're like, that stuff's been sanded. Wow, this is ready to paint now. And you roll in there the next day and you're like, the shrubs are here. There's a roof on this building. And this is the way God works, right? Your life is a construction zone, but not an abandoned one. Think about the excitement of wanting, desiring, needing to build something. You don't have it, you need it. You've longed for it, you've scraped, you've scrimped, you've collected materials. And then the day begins. The workers show up. Ah, there they are. The hammers are going. The saws. Is that an exciting day for you? That's an exciting day. As a matter of fact, it's likely 
that you're more excited about that day than the day when it's finally done. Because you've been so longing for just the beginning of this. And this is who we are as God's people. There's work going on in our lives. And it's glorious. It's a good work. It's a great work. It's messy. The proverb says, Where there is no ox, the stall is clean. But much work comes by the strength of the ox. Would you rather have a nice little 20 by 40 patch of grass in your yard? Or would you rather live in a house? Construction zones. That's who we are. Verse 13, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until, until, until. Think of that little word, until. What does it mean? It means you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. Some of you are runners, right? When do you stop running? Not until you get past the finish line. Some people like to slow down before they get there. Until, until, until. Recall, until the Lord is working, we're going, we're moving. The construction is going to continue until, until, until we're perfect. A few questions. Do you have any interest in growing in grace and trust in Christ? Are you bothered about your lack of understanding? Do you attribute significant aspects of your lack of holiness, relationship dysfunction, personal discontentedness, debilitating characterological sins to your own lack of interest in learning about the person and ways of God? The point is this. Do you connect those challenges in your life with a necessity to be a learner? A learner. Submitting yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Are you persuaded that you're too busy doing life to learn about doing life? Please don't bother me about how to fix the car. I've got to fix the car first. It is irrational. And we are irrational if we don't look upon this church and the intents of God in the church as we do life together. This phrase, unity of the faithhood, of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. No more, not mere unity of thinking, but unity in thinking the thoughts of Christ. All He says and does a unity in Christ's thoughts to mature manhood, to fullness of Christ here. Verse 13, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This idea of fullness, 
The idea here, uh, for instance, in John 1.16, from him... For, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 1 Corinthians 10.26 For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This full growth in the grace and gifts of Christ, complete, free from childish infirmities. Discussed further in verse 14, so that we may long, no longer be children. Now don't get the wrong idea here. Christ isn't nullifying His insistence that we come to faith with this childlike faith. There's a distinct difference between childlike and childish. Childlike is a permanent condition that we should cultivate. It has to do with being humble. It has to do with believing what it is that God says. This childlike aspect is something that if we grow out of, we have grown the wrong way. But childish faith... Childish faith is that which we must grow out of, and that's what the Apostle is talking about here. No longer to be children, not infantile, if you will. Many are content and may be persuaded that after one is converted, they're immediately mature in Christ. Immediately mature in Christ. Most people want to grow up. Do you want to grow up as a believer in Christ? If they remain a child, they'll continually fall prey to every false teacher who comes along. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here in verse 14. Hebrews 5, 11-14, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The apostle here, again, referring back to, if you will, the Great Commission, the idea of building disciples. He says, look, he's writing to the Hebrews, he says, you guys should be disciple makers by now. You should be discipling people. You should have a long list behind you of those people that you've led to the Lord Jesus Christ and you're cultivating godliness in their lives. But what is he saying? Oh, oh, you've. I'm still teaching you the elementary principles of the gospel. Tossed. James 1 6. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Carried. This idea of being involuntarily carried away by a hurricane. We're unanchored without the full knowledge of Christ. The imagery here is very stark. I mean, if you can think about anything more random, more destructive, if you will, more ominous than these just the the churning waves of the sea blown by the wind here and there and everywhere. Do you ever feel that way? The sea is dangerous and unpredictable. To be blown about by the winds and action of the sea, always churning. 
always susceptible here as well as to human cunning. The idea here behind cunning is an interesting little word, cubios. It it's, comes from the word cube. Like a dice. Like gambling. That's where the word comes from. Human cunning. Gambling. This idea, again, that you're susceptible to the foolery of gambling. The house always wins. You should know that. But yet we try anyway. Human cunning, craftiness, trickery, sophisticated argumentation that seems to begin faithfully but ends up far away from biblical obedience. Craftiness. Deceitful schemes like the devil lying in wait. Ephesians 6.11 Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The wiles of the devil. How does he work? Is the devil just this random guy that doesn't know what he's going to do in the morning? No. Be assured, Satan thinks strategically. And he is targeting with his minions every detail of your life. And some of those things you give into and you open up for him a wide door for what he's doing. We're susceptible because we don't know the Word of God. We're drawn in to the wiles of the devil as he plans, he targets, he thinks strategically. But verse 4.15 says we're to grow up. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up. Speaking the truth in love to one another, we're to grow up such that the body of Christ, the church, corresponds to the perfect head. Again, what do we have? We have a head and a body. So we see that the functions of the church correspond to the head of the church, and we also see that the head of the church ultimately will correspond to its body. That is, the head is perfect, but the body will also become perfect. And he's working that perfection in us now, this resurrection life, right? Speaking the truth, it's integral to what the church does. Speaking the truth, speaking the truth, speaking the truth. With Christ as the origin, verse 16, we have body, ligaments, joints, they're all held together. All these parts are working properly, efficiently, and strongly. Speaking the truth. Is that it? No. (laughs) It's speaking the truth in love. You say, well, at least I got it out there. No. No. It's got to happen. Speaking the truth has to happen, but also the in love has to happen too. They both have to happen. You say, well, I'm not going to discipline my kids until I'm not angry. Okay, but you've got to get over it like real fast in a hurry. You've got to do this in love. You've got to do this in love. The one can't go with the other. It doesn't work. 1 Corinthians 13, you know it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a prophetic power to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm only 50%. That's what Paul said, right? I'm good to go. We'll get the job done. 
Is that what he said? No. He said, nothing. Nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, we still get there. We're going to get there. No. I gain nothing. I gain nothing. This is, this is the church. It's built up in love. The urgently important descriptor of love. Building itself up in love. We speak the truth in love. When you see people in our church, we should be, be thinking more and more, what do I have from God for you? What can I tell you? What can I say to you that is appropriate and applicable to you personally to express that I love you, that I'm committed to you, that I see myself as as an instrument for your own discipleship? Not because I'm over you. Not because I'm better than you. We post all kinds of things on social media and so what 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 is your intent is it speaking the truth in love so that the body of Christ can be built up because if it isn't if it isn't falling into that category then god says we need to busy ourselves about something else that he's called us to This is from Michael Reeves, who wrote this little book, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? The bride is like an army. The bride of Christ, being the body of Christ, being the church of God, being the pillar and buttress of the truth, being the household of God. Same, same, same. The bride is like an army, and she is bright like the sun, with the reflected beauty of the moon. She has become awesome. That is true of the church, which is the bride of Christ. The church comes to reflect the bridegroom's awesome magnificence. We know from the Apostle Paul that believers are being transformed into the image of Christ. But Song of Songs specifies that transformation is a growth in a reflected awesomeness. Led by the Spirit into conformity with Christ, the church begins to exhibit to the world fearsome divine qualities of holiness, happiness, wholeness, and beauty. That's what we want. Happiness and holiness and beauty. Reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.